something that there is no doubt about, something that you could take home and say, you know what, if I didn't get anything from the sermon, at least I was reminded of this, and that is that you are the most important person in the world to Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ loves you so very much. How much? I'm playing this little little game with my daughter, and I tell her, how much does Papa love you? How much does Papa love you? And sometimes I tell her, I love you this much, right? And she goes, no, you love me more. I say, I love you this much? No, this much? You know, getting closer. And finally, I, I stretch out my arms as, as far as wide as I can, and I say, Jesus, I love you this much. So how much does Jesus love you? Can you show me? That much. So turn to the person to your left and to your right and says, say, Jesus loves me this much. And then if it's appropriate, give him a hug with those hands stretched out, okay? But you got to tell him, Jesus loves me this much. And the reason that it's so important to know that today is because we're going to be talking about crisis, crisis. And sometimes when we're under crisis, we forget that we are greatly, greatly loved. Please open with me your your Bibles. We're going to start with uh, a reading of scripture that is going to be the foundation of our message this morning. And is found in the writings of Peter, good old Peter, good old Peter, who we're going to go through his experience today. But uh, I love how Peter writes after all that he went through, all his ups and downs and his relationship with Christ and how Christ loved him and was so faithful to him. I love how he then writes at the end of the Bible some very important conclusions based on his life experience. And so let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 to 19. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 to 19. When you're there, say amen, so I know you're with me. All right. I got three or four people with me. Anybody else? All right. Got a couple more with me. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 19. It's towards the end of your Bible. Let's begin reading verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, he begins. You see? I was telling the truth. You're loved. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing is happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. But if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. There you go, Peter. Peter lays it out. And today's sermon, based on the scripture, is entitled, Conduct Under Crisis. Peter calls it a fiery trial. I'm going to call it a crisis. Crisis, and what is your conduct under crisis? You know, I was reading a story a couple of months ago of three friends who, from the United States who were traveling in Europe as vacationers. Maybe you've heard this story as well. Their names were Anthony Sadler, Spencer Stone, and Alex Scarlatos. They were aboard a high-speed train en route from Paris to Amsterdam. Now, Alec Scarlatos, a 20-year-old, was a National Guardsman based in Oregon when, who was on a month-long vacation after his return from deployment in Afghanistan. So imagine, here's a soldier. He's gone to one of the most dangerous parts of the world, Afghanistan. And finally, after surviving his time and service there, he decides to take a vacation in Europe. And there he is on the high-speed train, relaxing with his two friends, when suddenly he hears gunfire go off. I imagine that first he must have said something like, my mind must be playing tricks on me. You know, maybe I, I'm remembering Afghanistan, I'm on vacation. But then he heard breaking glass and people screaming, and all of a sudden in his train car appeared a man with a gun. Well, there was a crisis on the train. What did Alec do? The story is told that he didn't just lay down in a fetal position like I would. He got his friends in action. He yelled at his two friends, get him, after they heard a gunshot and noticed that the gunman's weapon appeared to be jammed. And those men, fearing death, but still with great courage and bravery, charged at the shooter. And Alex Scarlatos, just like in an action movie, he seized the gunman's rifle, took it away from him, and used his own rifle to so to, to hit him in the head and knock him almost unconscious. Crisis. What is your conduct under crisis? Now, I, I, I read this story and I said, wow, those U.S. military men, they sure are trained well. Or, or maybe, they, maybe they just picked the most courageous people to join the military. But then I discovered in another story I read a, a few months later of another man by the names of James Shaw Jr. Now, James Shaw Jr. had gone out with friends, and it was about 2 in the morning. My mama always said, nothing good happens at 2 in the morning. And uh, they decided after going out with his friends to head to the Bell Road Waffle House. They were hungry for some waffles at 2 in the morning. But when they got to the Bell Road Waffle House, it was too full. So they decided to go to another Waffle House down the street, two miles down the road. They sat down, and it was the wrong Waffle House to pick because not had five minutes passed, and a gunman walked in and started shooting the diners. He immediately shot four people who died of their injuries. And James Shaw Jr. was grazed by a bullet, and he was trapped, nowhere to go. But even though he was not in the military, he says that he looked at the gunman who had began to reload his gun 
and that he jumped and rushed toward the man. He said, I grabbed the gun. I kept the muzzle down. He had one hand on it. I had another. I pulled it away, and I threw it over the bar. The gunman looked at what had just happened and fled, running away. Wow. James Shaw Jr., Alec, all these men who under crisis showed exemplary conduct. And when I think of those stories, I am reminded that in this world, there will always be a crisis. Isn't that right? We live in a world of sin. We live in a world where you could be sitting on a train and you could be sitting at a restaurant and all of a sudden the crisis falls upon you. And not only for people who are unbelievers, but as Paul clearly states, even for believers, he said, don't think it's strange. Maybe when the crisis comes for the unbeliever, we think, ah, kind of expected, right? But Paul says, don't think it's strange when the crisis comes upon you. Even as a Christian in this world of sin, after 18 years of marriage, a crisis can come. After 15 years of raising that kid, a crisis can come. After 40 years of perfect physical, annual physicals, the crisis can come. After 20 years of working at that job, the crisis can come. Friends, Paul is telling us that in this world, in this life, crisis will come. And I believe that you can attest to that because we have all been through crisis, haven't we? Is the Bible speaking truth? It is. But what Paul is saying is don't be surprised when the crisis comes. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he reminds us that even among the crisis, it doesn't mean that you are not loved. Because he begins with the word, beloved. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Sometimes when the crisis comes, the temptation is to doubt God, to doubt his character, to doubt his intentions, to doubt who he is. And so Paul, Peter begins with the words, beloved. In other words, you are still loved by God, but don't think it's strange when the crisis comes. Because what Paul is emphasizing here is not whether a crisis will come or not come. Paul is, I mean, Peter is not emphasizing whether it will come or not, and he's not emphasizing whether God loves you or not. Those two things are a given in these verses. What Paul is emphasizing to Christians is the important the importance of your conduct under crisis. He says in verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. When the crisis comes in your life, how you conduct yourself can either bring glory to God or bring shame to you and to God. And so here Paul is saying, the crisis will come. Don't think it's strange, my beloved person. So uh, God loves you. The crisis will come. But my main point, Peter says, is how you conduct yourself. When I read this, I almost laughed. Because, you know, sometimes you take advice 
from people who have been there and done it well, right? I'm willing to take advice from those types of people. If Alec would have come here and tell us, listen, Christians, you have to conduct yourself in an exemplary way and bring glory to God when you're under crisis, just like I did in that train when the crisis began. I would understand. I would say, hey, listen to this guy. He knows what he's talking about. If James Shaw would come here and say, listen, believers, listen, friends, I know that you're under crisis, but it's important how you conduct yourself under this crisis, just like I did. Let me give you my thought process on how I did it so that you can conduct yourself in the right way. I would say, brothers and sisters, listen to this man. But Peter? Are you serious? When Peter was with Jesus... The crisis came. And what did he do when the crisis came? How did he conduct himself? How did he act? Peter? I mean, come on. Let's go to the Bible verse, Luke chapter 22 and verse 54. And we find there the story of how Peter conducted himself under crisis. The one who is sermonizing here. How did he act when he came under the great crisis of his life. Luke chapter 22 and verse 54 tells us that story. Luke chapter 22 and verse 54 begins with these words. Are you there? Amen? Amen. All right. It says this, having arrested him. Who's him in this story? Okay, Jesus is arrested. They led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Here is the crisis. Peter has been following Jesus. He's given up family. He's given up house. He's given up profession. He has followed Jesus and sacrificed it all, and and for him, Jesus is going to be king. Anytime now, he's going to be crowned king, and Peter believes that maybe he's going to be the prime minister or the, maybe the minister of defense. You know, he's a very action-violent man sometimes. And when he sees his Lord and Savior being arrested, you know, they had tried to arrest him many times, and he had slipped through the crowds. He had his hands tied. Maybe someone pushed him. Maybe someone else hit him. Maybe someone spit at him. Maybe someone called him names. And all of a sudden, all that, all that Peter believed about Jesus came tumbling down. It was the crisis of his life. You know, when you go through your crisis, sometimes what you have believed or thought about Jesus is threatened. Your picture of him, it almost comes crumbling down. How will you conduct yourself in the crisis? Well, Peter decided to follow Jesus, to follow him and his arrest. Verse 55 tells us, Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard, Peter sat down together among them, And verse 56 tells us that a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. How do you conduct yourself under crisis? Here, Peter is having this crisis of faith. Crisis because Jesus promised him certain things that the kingdom, his kingdom would be established, that he was the Messiah. But everything he's seen doesn't seem to make sense. 
God has these beautiful promises in the Bible for you, these words of truth, but sometimes when the crisis comes, you say, this doesn't line up, this doesn't make sense, and the test of your conduct is, do you trust his word? And when it came to Peter and they said, you were with him too, weren't you? How does Peter conduct himself? The Bible tells us that he said in verse 57, but he denied saying, woman, I do not know him. In verse 58, after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Verse 59, then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And listen to this last verse. So Peter went out and wept what? He wept bitterly. You know, how did Peter conduct himself under crisis? Well, in an exemplary manner or in a shameful manner? In a very shameful manner. And here he is preaching to us. Come on. But the reason that Peter is preaching to you is because of the lesson that he learned through his shameful conduct under crisis. The Bible tells us that he went and he wept bitterly. And my question was, when I read that, what was he crying about? Because to tell you the truth, women, men don't cry easy. Men don't cry easy. We don't. It takes a lot to make us cry. I think just this week my wife said, I don't think I've seen you cry in 10 years or something like that. I said, well, it's dry tears. Sometimes the dry tears come. Have you guys seen dry tears before? Men don't cry easily. Why was Peter weeping here? Why was he weeping? Some people say that maybe he was weeping because Jesus had been arrested. I don't think that's the case. Maybe he was weeping because of the way he acted. I don't think that's the case. I think the reason he was weeping is because this crisis did something. And here is the point that I want you to understand. Christ Crisis doesn't change you, it reveals you. Crisis doesn't change you, it reveals you. I think Peter went out crying bitterly because he thought that he was a certain man. He thought that he was a faithful man. He thought that he would do it all and go to death with Jesus. But when the crisis came, it revealed to him that he was a weak faithless, vacillating, denying man. And he got a true picture of who he was. And when he saw who he was, he wept bitterly. The Bible tells us that before this crisis in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, go a couple of uh, verses before, the Lord said to him, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith shall not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So here we get a picture of why there sometimes comes a crisis upon believers. Here, Peter, according to to Jesus, is seen by Satan as someone who's ripe for the harvest. In other words, Satan has gone and said, you know what? This man thinks that he is faithful to you. He thinks that he loves you more than he really loves you. But listen, times have been good. Let me bring a crisis upon Peter and let's see how he really acts. But what was the response of Peter to this suggestion that he was under the danger He says to Jesus in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. What was Peter willing to do for him according to his own words? Go to prison and go to to death for him. In the danger for the Christian without the crisis, is that we think that we are more than we are. We think we love God more than we love Him. We think that we believe His words more than we believe Him. We think that we would, under any circumstances, be able to stand up for Jesus. But in God's mercy, when He sees us, He sees us for who we really are. And it's not until we see ourselves as He sees us that we're able to really conduct ourselves the right way under crisis. And so what is Peter trying to tell us here through his experience? Peter is trying to tell us that the true condition of your trust in God can only be revealed under duress or crisis. That the true condition of your love, your faith, and your trust for God can only truly be revealed under crisis. That's why he begins with the words, Beloved, 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 do not think it, what? Strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange things has happened to you. I am grateful that Jesus will not leave me in the condition that I am, but he calls me to a higher calling. Because I know that when the crisis comes, I need to be like him. And if I'm not, then he needs to show me now. You know... For believers, it's easy to want to go on as we are and act as if nothing is wrong. And God has to awaken us sometimes. Because sometimes even among our church members, we fail to encourage each other to move forward if something is wrong. Sometimes only crisis reveals it. You know, one time I showed up in Guam, my church in in Guam, and, and I was trying to make the point that, uh, that sometimes we get so used to things in our Christian walk that we ignore the signs that we have more growing to do. And so I showed up. Now, here's Guam, right? Guam has never been colder than 80 degrees the whole time I was there. Okay, it's like 100% humidity there. And um, 
It was the summertime, so it must have been close to 100 degrees in Guam. And I show up to church one Sabbath, and I have my suit on, and then I have a winter scarf around my neck. Okay? I walk into the church with my winter scarf, like nothing, acting like nothing. How are you guys? Happy Sabbath, everything. I did everything. I did Sabbath school. I greeted people. I talked to people. I, I, I did the song service before the sermon, the special music, everything. And I stood up to preach with this big scarf around my neck. And do you think one person told me anything about that scarf? <laughs> Not one person said, Pastor, what's wrong with you? You got a scarf around your neck. Don't you know this is Guam? God, and I called them out and I said, what's wrong with you people? Don't you see, I've lost my mind and no one even said anything. I think if I have some food in my teeth, none of you would say anything either. But God is not like that. When he sees you and he sees a problem, he says, I have to tell him. I have to allow this crisis that is brought upon by Satan to reveal what the issues of their heart really are. And so Satan allows a big crisis, I mean God allows a, a big crisis, or a little crisis, or a medium crisis, or whatever crisis you need, so that you, like Peter, could see who you really are, and sometimes we're going to have to go weep bitterly. Say, oh, I didn't know I was like that. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to see it. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to know that I need to, to change. And the reason that, that God in his mercy is doing this is because God is looking to the future. He's looking to the future and he knows that prophecy tells us that a great crisis is coming right before the second coming. And it'll be too late. It'll be too late for us to become Christ-like in the final crisis. It needs to happen before. And so just like Peter... God looks upon the church in the last days in Revelation chapter 3, and he sees the same problem there. Go to me to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to uh, 22. And uh, it's the lukewarm church, the church of Laodicea. And the Bible tells us there that this church has this problem of not knowing their true condition. And when you don't know your true condition, it will be revealed under crisis. And so the Bible tells us here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22, And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans writes, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. But listen to this next part. Because you say, I am what? Rich and have become wealthy and have need of what? That's like Peter, right? I'll go to death for Jesus. I'll go to prison to Je for Jesus. Here, this church in the last days has the same spirit of Peter before the crisis. He's saying, I'm, I'm good. I'm rich. I'm faithful. I'm loving. I'm all good. But what does Jesus say to this church? And you do not know that you are actually what? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire. I love that statement because, you know, 
Jesusa, I know that you and Gary go find gold, and, and many times when I think you go find gold, I always think that, you know, you go and you find like these huge gold nuggets that are shining bright, and what you're looking for is like a hill that is shining, and you go dig, and these beautiful, you know, laid out bricks of gold are there. But when you guys go, I know that you have to take the water and the shovel, and you might find one little nugget is full of dirt and other stuff, and it has to be it has to go through a process to see its true beauty and character. So Jesus is saying, you think you're wealthy, you, you think you're good, Christians, in the last days, but in reality, you're broken. And it's through the crisis which will refine you that your true beauty will be revealed or your true need of change will be revealed. So don't think it's strange. When the crisis comes, the crisis will come. The crisis has come. You might be in the middle of a crisis. How are you responding? What is your conduct? Because your conduct is going to reveal your relationship with Christ and who you are really. And that will either make you weep like Peter and want to change. Or it will bring glory to God. Because you are exemplary under crisis. I love it when God reveals the need for change in my life. There was a, a, there was a, a beautiful love story that happened in the university that my father graduated in Peru. I'm not even sure the name of the university. It's an Adventist university, but they've changed it so many times. But back in the days when he was going to school or around that time, there was uh, a young lady that was attending this university. And uh, if you've ever seen a beautiful woman before, she was ten times more beautiful than that. I mean, this was the most beautiful woman on the campus and probably the city. She was, she was beautiful. And all the, and all the college students wanted to, to date her. They wanted to become her boyfriend. But she had no interest in them because she wanted to concentrate on her studies. Now, also in that university, there was another young man who was studying there, and he was a hard worker. He would work at the university, and in the summers, he would sell Christian books door-to-door, what we call coal-porting. And with his work over the summer, he was able to pay for his studies for that whole year, for that whole year. And so he was a hard worker, he was a good man, But to tell you the truth, and I'm not just saying it, it's been told, he was a very ugly man. He was a very ugly man, okay? But that very ugly man also wanted to date that very beautiful, that girl. And so the story goes that um, he was too shy to even speak to her. You know, sometimes men are not very good looking, but at least they have good, you know, blah, blah, blah. They talk good, and sometimes at least that helps them get over the hump with a relationship. Well, he didn't even have that. You know, he, didn't, he wasn't good at conversating either. But he, but he loved this woman from afar. The day came when uh, the young lady was called to the admissions office there at the university, the financial department. They said, we're sorry, we're going to have to ask you to leave the university because you are behind on your payments. And uh, we can't allow you to continue to incur this debt upon the university. Uh, you, you can no longer study this next semester. Well, you can imagine she was broken. She was sad. She was despondent. Now, this young man heard about this. 
And in secret, he went to the financial department and he said, listen, I worked all summer and I've paid my school for the semester in advance, but I want you to take that money and put it to her account. Put it to her account so she could continue studying here at the university. And they said, what are you doing? I mean, do you even know her that well? And he said, it's my money. I can do whatever I want. Go ahead and put it to her account. The only thing I want you to do for me is don't tell her that it came from me. Tell her there was some sort of uh, scholarship or something like that. And so he left the school because he didn't study. He couldn't study because he had no more money. And she was brought in the office and told that some sort of money had come in and that she had a scholarship to continue studying. And so the story went. Well, about a year later, the man had collected enough money to come back to school. And after one year of being away from her and not seeing her, he had been thinking about her and he said, you know what, I think I should step up and ask her out on a date. And so one day he got the courage and he went up to her and he said, hi, my name is so-and-so and I know that you don't know me, but I would like to get to know you. Would you be willing to go out on a date with me? She looked at him, and with a face of disgust, she said, Have you looked at yourself? Have you looked at me? Have you looked at me? Do you know how many men here would like to go out with me? Who do you think you are coming and asking me on a date? He turned around, and I mean, he was broken. He was a broken man. Now, a student in the seminary, had no, he was friends with him and knew what he did for her. And he kind of pouted for about a week until he couldn't take it no more. And he said, I need to go talk to this young lady. Put her in her place, right? And so he went up to her, the seminary student who had been a friend of that young man. He said, I want to tell you something. You know that man that you embarrassed, that you humiliated, that man who asked you out? You don't know who that man is. You know, a couple of, about a year ago, they were about to kick you out of school here. Do you know why you're still studying? It's because of that man. What do you mean? I, I got a scholarship. Scholarship? You didn't get no scholarship. He took his money and he gave it for you. And that's the only reason you're here. Seminary student walked away, but he noticed that this young lady had left the school. For one week, no one saw her. No one heard of her. That seminary student started feeling a little guilty. Maybe he should have kept his mouth shut, he said. But about one week later, he ran into that young man. The young man was beaming on his face. I'm in a relationship now. Really? With who? With that beautiful young lady. And the seminary student said, what? What's going on? So he said, I need to get to the bottom of this. So he went to that young lady, and he said, what happened? And this is what she said. She said, I'm not with him because he paid for my school. I'm with him because I thought that I was a good person, a great person. I thought I was, I thought I was beautiful on the outside and beautiful on the inside. But then I realized that someone who I never did anything for loved me so much and gave so much for me 
and I treated them so despicably. It revealed my true character, and I didn't like it. And then I thought to myself, how can I reject someone who has loved me so much? I don't think there's another boy on this campus who loves me as much as this man loves me. And so, even though I've seen that I'm not the person that I should be, I want to change. And I think his love will change me. How have you conducted yourself under crisis? When the man Jesus Christ gave everything for you, gave his life for you. And when the crisis came, have you questioned his love? Have you questioned his character? Have you questioned his intentions for you? Maybe you've denied him. Maybe you pushed him away. Maybe you have even rejected him. Maybe you've said, I don't know him because of the crisis in my finances, the crisis in my health, the crisis in my relationships. Maybe it's because you haven't had a good picture of how much he loves you. And this, not seminary student, well, actually, I am in the seminary, right? Now, this other seminary student is here to tell you what he has done for you, and how much he loves you, and hopefully that will reveal your true character, and you will see that under crisis, maybe we haven't acted the best, but there's something else. God's love can still change you so that you can conduct yourself under crisis in a better way. Peter, later on, and we're not going to read the scripture because we're running out of time, was uh, brought under inspection because he was preaching the word of God after Jesus has resurrected and gone to heaven. And uh, they, they brought him and they, they arrested him and they brought him before the most powerful men of his nation. So the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the soldiers, the Romans, they were all there. Now this wasn't a little servant girl by the fireside. This was the most powerful men. And they asked him, and whose, with whose authority are you healing and preaching? And he said, in the name of who? Jesus Christ. And they say, there's something different about this man. This man was a weak man. This man was a vacillating man. This was a man who denied Jesus. But something changed. And this is what the Bible said about them. They noticed that they had been with Jesus. That was the difference. So have you failed in a crisis? Peter failed in a crisis, but still through God's love, forgiveness, and empowerment, God was able to change him, to become a man of power, to become a man who reflected the character of Christ. And so I leave you with this final thoughts, and keep it in your mind. The proof of the power and the presence of God is not the absence of attack, but the ability of the believer to withstand it. The proof and the power of the presence of God is not the absence of a crisis, but your ability to withstand that crisis and conduct yourself as a faithful believer who loves God with all his heart. So let the crisis come. Because it's our preparation for eternity. That's what Paul is saying. Not only through words, but through experience. Are you going through a crisis? God loves you so much through that crisis. And because he loves you, 
He's not going to take every crisis away from you. Some crises he will allow. So it will reveal your greater need for him. But one day soon, there will be no more crisis. There will only be praise and everlasting life. Let's make it on that day. Let's be together on that day when he comes back. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a difficult prayer. Thank you for not keeping every crisis from me. Thank you for not keeping every crisis from us. Because it's so easy, Lord, to pretend or to maybe even deceive ourselves that we are something that we are not. And like Peter, Lord, we ask that you allow us to see who we really are. Reveal to us who we are. So that if we need to change or continue to grow, that your love and your grace will do that for us. Just like it did it for Peter. So when the crisis comes, Lord, we could conduct ourselves in a manner that shows the universe that your grace and power is sufficient. This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and amen. We're in the crisis together, amen? Amen. amen.